Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This week, it finally happened. The rumors became reality as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott announced their long-awaited presidential campaigns. The contrast between the two events foreshadowed all of the big questions for next year's Republican primaries. Tim Scott, who is a favorite among his Senate colleagues, but who is mostly unknown outside of his home state and the Washington, D.C. fundraising circuit, preached optimism and unity while sharing the stage with his mother. This is the freest, fairest land where you can go as high as your character and your grit and your talent will take you. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, did something a little different. He announced his campaign on Twitter spaces with Elon Musk. All right. Sorry about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers. Biden's allowed woke ideology to drive his agenda. We will never surrender to the woke mob and we will leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history. It was the perfect setup for the choice Republicans will have to make in Iowa, New Hampshire and beyond. Do they want a president who follows in Ronald Reagan's footsteps, one who is optimistic and driven by ideas, who shakes hands and kisses babies? Or do they want someone like Trump, a leader who uses the Internet to press the attack on the cultural issues that have divided the country? Now, Scott and DeSantis join a crowded GOP field that includes former governors Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and of course, the dominant frontrunner, Donald Trump. Joining me to talk about Scott and DeSantis and all things 2024 is Jonathan Martin, an old friend of mine and also Politico's politics bureau chief and co-author of the bestseller, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. So Ron DeSantis's glitchy Twitter launch. Is it worth freaking out over? Is his campaign over? Or is this just a, a little bump in the road? And how long will this be hanging over his campaign? It's all over. He can never show his face in polite company again. He should hang it up. No, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm uh, kidding, obviously, about the, the scale of the coverage. Uh, but look, it was not what they wanted. It was humiliating. And it was sort of the fitting coda, to borrow one of those great journalistic cliches, uh, to what's been like a really rough uh, uh, pre-campaign. I mean, basically since uh, the start of this year, Things have not gone uh, the way that they had hoped, and there's been a lot of bad buzz, especially in the the donor community, which of course is a feedback loop for the press, and that creates a really tough narrative. To borrow one of the governor's favorite words, and um, look, he doesn't seem to care about the mainstream press, or at least conveys that kind of disdain. The truth is, the tides of press coverage in the year before the primary. In the primary itself, certainly, it shapes voters. I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans. The coverage does matter. It shapes the views of the voters. And so I think that's why it matters. Uh, it's just one more round of bad clips for him. Um, you know, I, I'm really interested to see how much it is going to impact his fundraising. I mean, I think he's still going to raise quite a bit of money from his launch. Uh, but obviously... The upshot of this is that Trump is just delighted. Uh, you know, he views DeSantis as his most formidable competition. And for DeSantis to sort of step in it like this on day one is just gravy for Donald Trump. Let's talk about DeSantis versus Trump. You were down in Florida at the invitation of some DeSantis advisors. 
at a sort of interesting moment when it seems like the DeSantis crew decided they needed to engage a little bit with the press, that they were sort of losing in this fight with Trump. Just tell us a little bit about what sort of prompted them inviting you down and sort of what you took away from those conversations. Talk about what mistakes do the DeSantis team made this year? What was their plan going into 2023? How did they screw it up if you think they did? And what are their prospects for writing the, the, the ship uh, post-announcement? So, look, they came off his midterm victory as the prettiest girl at the prom. Um, and you know, bell of the ball, whatever metaphor you want to use. And they had an opportunity. And um, I think that they were so confident that they had such a head of steam that they could do the book, roll out, do the legislative session, and to keep the metaphor going, all of their, their suitors would, would still be there waiting uh, by the time he launched his candidacy uh, in the spring. And the problem with that is that like Donald Trump wasn't going to wait, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't going to sort of sit idly by. Not known for his patience. This, like, <laughs> this massive threat uh, from his own adopted state emerged uh, to sort of yank the nomination from him and like render him uh, like humiliated and consigned to... Uh, the ash heap of political history as a you know one-term disgraced former president. That was not going to happen. And so I think this, this sort of interregnum between midterm and announcement obviously did not go the way they wanted it. I think in part because of he was so strong coming out of the midterms and there was such a hunger to find somebody besides Trump. And the rest of the midterms went so poorly for the rest of the party that surely... Uh, he'd be able to sort of corner the market and, you know, he'd have a zillion dollars waiting for him and his numbers would be strong. Look, I think that that didn't fully grapple with either, you know, A, Trump's strength and desire to kill DeSantis in the crib. And I think it didn't also fully grapple with the fact that, that the Republican Party um, is a complicated organism right now. And, Yes, there are a lot of folks who want to win back the presidency in 2024 and, and want to move past Trump, but they're a pretty divergent group, Ryan. And we talked about this at the top. I mean, this is part of his challenge is the people that want to move past Trump um, basically have just that in common and nothing else in common. And, you know, when DeSantis used that period to really at every turn send the signal that he mostly wanted to appeal to the kind of MAGA adjacent wing of the party, I think it alienated a lot of other Republicans. Yes, many of them donors mm -hmm. who talk to the press. And by the way, a lot of them who feel very strongly on the Ukraine issue. Um, yeah. But DeSantis yeah. should have known that. And uh, the lack of effort in you know, trying to develop and lockdown relationships to me, and I wrote about this some at the start of the year when he was inaugurated, um, has just been shocking to me. Um, with fellow Republican governors, with lawmakers in his own state, which you guys have written about, um, and with just sort of big influential figures in the party. Talk to former Governor Haley Barber from Mississippi, former chairman of the RNC, uh, sort of enormously influential figure for decades in Republican politics. And he has no relationship with Ron DeSantis. He doesn't um, know. He I just, mean, he, I just yeah. don't understand how you wouldn't fix that if you were DeSantis. So different than George W. Bush in 2000, who had a similar kind of post-reelection strategy and, of course, leveraged all of his relationships with fellow Republican governors around the country. No, absolutely. And when I was in Tallahassee in January for the inauguration, I actually uh, did just that comparison to George W. Bush in 99. You know, and Ryan, it's so eerily similar. You know, Bush had a really good uh, you know, re-election in 98 and a, in a year that was otherwise dismal for Republicans, a sort yep. of big letdown in a midterm. And the party was desperate to turn to somebody outside Washington who could revive the party in the next presidential. There's so many similarities there. And the difference is that Bush had relationships. There was no nurture. Trump, though. <laughs> Dan Quayle was not Donald Trump, though. <laughs> 
Dan Quayle and Liddy Dole and Gary Bauer <laughs> were not Donald Trump. Exactly. But but Ryan also, Bush put effort into it, right? I mean, he had relationships. He had gone to RGAs for years. You talk to other Republican governors, and I know you have, and DeSantis just has no footprint uh, at the RGA, doesn't have relationships with those folks, and it was just kind of a lone ranger uh, as a governor, the same way as he was in Congress. And that stuff ultimately matters. And where does it matter? It matters precisely in the interregnum between midterm and launch, when the chattering class is chattering, and it's all about the perception. Because there's no hard metrics, right? It's all perception. But yep. perception can can harden into reality. The risk for DeSantis is not taking full advantage of that period. He had a remarkable legislative session in Tallahassee. I mean, if you just look at the list, right? Tort reform, immigration reform, stuff on the death penalty, uh, the abortion ban, which obviously is is complicated because it's not popular in the general election. But the the list of conservative priorities that he has passed in Florida you know, if you are a Wall Street Journal editorial board member, this guy's done it all. But, you know, from my perspective in those early months, that's not what defined the invisible primary during that period. Nobody's getting excited about his tort reform bill or like, you know, an anti-union bill. That's exactly right. No, because they're more focused on his lack of outreach, his lack of relationships, taking positions, uh, on issues that uh, at every turn accommodate kind of the MAGA base instead of the pre-Trump party and frankly focused on whatever Trump's latest eruption is too. Exactly. And uh, I get why that's frustrating for the DeSantis folks, but that's sort of how this works. Now, that said, he did get a lot done in that session and he's now going to have a chance to talk about it at great length as a candidate. And I think he'll be able to sort of drive attention to what he did uh, not just this session in Tallahassee, but what he's done as governor uh, for the last term plus. And that will be a great test of what the Republican Party wants. They want somebody who has confronted the left and the media and gotten significant victories uh, in what was once a swing state and who kind of represents the closed fist uh, pugilism of, of today's party. Or do they want the original recipe, right? All right. The, the Scott announcement, what did you learn? I felt like I had stepped into a time portal and I was hurling back into uh, Republican uh, history. And it was like, uh, you know, Jack Kemp meets George W. Bush meets Marco Rubio. Uh, I've seen <laughs> the movie before. Uh, positive, optimistic. Don't tell me America is, is faded. We're the best country in the world because we... Uh, you know, offer the most opportunity. And if you work hard and play by the rules, you can be anything here. Uh, don't let the left run down the stars and stripes and, uh, you know, Declaration of Independence and Constitution and Founding Fathers and our great uh, star-spangled meritocracy. Uh, delivered, obviously, by a black man, Um which we have not necessarily seen as from a sort of top tier, at least, uh, in a Republican uh, primary. The, the folks that I mentioned uh, a second ago, obviously, were, were white and, in Marco's case, Cuban-American. So that's different. But, Ryan, I just feel like the message is very distinctively pre-Trump. And that mm-hmm. if you closed your eyes and turned off your cell phone, you could have been teleported back to a pre-Trump world. The operatives, the donors, the endorsers, uh, all sort of a pre-Trump world. Look at John Thune standing up there and introducing Tim Scott. And then to have Elon Musk sort of moderate the Ron DeSantis announcement. Yeah, tells you you everything about their two bets. Um, You know, Scott is very much from the pre-Trump party. And I think... DeSantis is trying to accommodate the Trump party. And those are dueling bets. Here's where I think the rubber meets the road. I'm not sure either of those bets work because each needs the other's coalition, I think, ultimately to fend off Trump. And I think this is the challenge that Scott and DeSantis are going to have, is that because DeSantis' instinct at every turn is to accommodate the right, 
Uh, and Scott wants to sort of run toward the pre-Trump party, that's going to get them a lot of votes. But it's also going to divide the Republican primary along lines that we kind of saw in 2016. And look no further than, yes, Iowa, Ryan, where if you look at what Marco Rubio won in Iowa in 2016, it was largely the college-educated metropolitan areas of that state. It was good enough for a, you know, a decent third place. And then you look mm-hmm. at where Ted Cruz and Ben Carson uh, did well, and it was largely with evangelical voters in less populated parts of Iowa. If you just put those coalitions and change the names to Scott and DeSantis, well, boy, you can see how each of them get a lot of votes, but you can also see how they split votes and hand the nomination to Trump once again. We've talked about this before, but we have a pretty diverse Republican field And there's a history in recent open Republican primaries of candidates of color um, having surges, obviously not winning the nomination, but getting really hard looks and lots of enthusiasm and uh, at certain points um, surging, uh, becoming temporary front runners. Now, previously, these candidates have been somewhat uh, fringy. but in this primary, we have two Republicans, uh, two non-white Republicans who are, you know, with with serious, uh, with with serious, very respectable bios. Right. How do you think that race and identity might play uh, in this primary? And obviously, the, the two I'm, I'm thinking of are, are Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott, of course. It could be an opportunity for also for you to give us a little bit of insight into the the South Carolina angle and sort of how the people in South Republican South Carolina see those two candidates. Yeah, look, I think the identity issue is inextricable from both their candidacies. Both of them are are embracing that. I mean, you know, Nikki Haley obviously has talked about her immigrant roots and obviously uh, her gender uh, in ways that are overt and and more implied uh, from the start of her campaign. And Tim Scott, Monday at his launch in North Charleston, obviously talked repeatedly about why he is the living personification that rebuts what he says is the left's lie uh, about America's racist nature. And so they're putting that front and center. Now, that, that mostly is to the delight of a overwhelmingly white primary electorate. Uh, and they know that. I think they're, they're comfortable with that. Um, I think what makes this cycle different, Ryan, is when Herman Cain or uh, Ben Carson, or to go even further back in the the ghost of primaries past, the Alan Keys, you know, when they mm-hmm. launched their campaigns, uh, they didn't have the second ranking Senate Republican and one of the world's wealthiest man uh, at yeah. their announcements, and so John Thune, you know, introduced. Uh, Scott effectively and Larry Ellison was in the arena mm-hmm. in North Charleston for that launch. So I think that Scott starts uh, as a much more formidable candidate than, than those folks that we talked about who've sort of had their 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 boom and then quickly bust cycles. Uh, so I think uh, that makes him stand out. The other thing I think that's interesting about Scott is that there's really nobody who's offering the kind of you know pre-Trump sunny optimistic messaging that he's offering. And, you know, this is the same, this is bad that, look, the party has changed and they want uh, a noun, a verb, and woke in every sentence, and I'm going to give it to them. And mm-hmm. there's obviously truth to that. The party has changed uh, dramatically. This is not a Bush 43 party, let alone a Bush 41 party. But there's still plenty of voters uh, who were there before Trump, and they need somewhere to go. And I think that's why Scott's candidacy is interesting, because I think he offers them a place to go. We'll see if they stay, and we'll see if Scott's still around by South Carolina. Um, But I think that, at least in the start, Ryan, is the most interesting element of his candidacy. On the issue of South Carolina, it is fascinating, because there's something of a divide uh, in the state among, among activists and elected officials, uh, not just between Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, but also when it comes to Donald Trump. I mean, the senior senator and, and the governor of the state are supporting uh, the guy from Mar-a-Lago, uh, not the guy <laughs> from South Carolina. That's notable. Like, I think it's a fascinating favorite son, favorite daughter story playing out in an early state, which we have not had before. 
We've had candidates from early states run. Obviously, Tom Harkin being the most memorable example who effectively killed off the 92 Iowa caucuses because he was the favorite son. But we, we haven't had two candidates from the same early state uh, compete. So I think it'd be a fascinating storyline. I just don't want to get too far ahead because I'm fairly skeptical that both of them will still be in the race um, come yeah. South Carolina next year. Yeah. I think that the finances and the hunger to either beat Trump or just accommodate Trump are such that by we get to the the time we get to the four state next year, I think the field's gonna have winners significantly. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You know, in the old days, we used to talk about lanes, and we used to talk about the Republican Party as this three-legged stool of national security conservatives, economic conservatives, and social conservatives. Even then, I thought it maybe was a little too simplistic and sort of put like elite policy ideas onto a base that was always a little more complicated. Obviously, Trump came along and, and sort of carpet bombed the highway, so you can, you know you don't really see the lanes anymore. And I, the way I think about this, I'm trying. I'm really curious in your head when you're covering this, how you think about it. Is I see the MAGA as a movement with voters that are new to the Republican Party that maybe came out of one of those lanes but don't self-identify anymore, and. The challenge for anyone who is trying to take on a movement leader is you're not necessarily going to win them over on uh, abortion or your foreign policy position or your policy positions in Florida because that's not what's sticking them to this guy. So it creates an incredible challenge for anyone. So I guess my question is, like, what's the status of the old way of thinking about the Republican primary and this idea of ideological lanes? And is there any framework that sort of you use right now? I read about this in my previous column, the one that from Tallahassee. Um, I tried to grapple with this uh, in that piece from Tallahassee. The pre-Trump Republican primary usually, not always, but usually played out like this. There was, at the end, always an establishment versus an insurgent. And sometimes the insurgent was more of a populist, uh, like Pat Buchanan in 92 and 96. And other times it was more of a social conservative, um, like a Santorum in 2012. Uh, or then at times it was kind of a hybrid, like Huckabee in 08, of a populist and a social conservative against an establishment-backed candidate. And invariably, the establishment-backed candidate would wrap it up and be on the way. Now, Trump blew that up, right? And that was a very straightforward binary, that type of primary. And I think we're, we're looking at a different one now. And to your point, Ryan, it, yeah, it's less wrapped around, I think, a set of policy issues. And I think it's a mix of a policy uh, and tone and affect. And this is why I was harping earlier on the vibes at, at the Scott event. It feels so like such a sort of um, echo of an earlier day. Um, you know, the sun is rising uh, on America. And uh, what was the old Bush line about, you know, our side of the mountain, the sun? Yes, 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 yes. It was like a painting in his office in Texas that he would like he liked to refer to. That's right. Look, I, that sends a signal. It's like the bat signal is up in the air, right? Pre-Trump Republicans, uh, country clubs across America. <laughs> You're candidate. Um, what was the old line about Wendell Wilkie? Uh, he had support from the grassroots of uh, every country club. Um <laughs> 
the putting green of every country club in America. I will say this, though, man. Um, there were some very well-tailored people at that event uh, in North Charleston. Uh, <laughs> now, there were some people who were kind of work-a-day folks, but the class element was sort of unmistakable. Plenty of retirees and uh, certainly donors who were wearing jackets that were much pricier than uh, uh, the cost of my airfare. Uh, <laughs> there is a sort of element of the party that still wants that, right? I, I, I don't think it's insignificant. And so... I think that's one way I look at it, Ryan. It, it, it's sort of the pre-Trump wing of the party, the kind of older establishment, right? I think you could put Mitch McConnell as sort of, or John Thune, if you want more of a younger face, as sort of the uh, representation of that wing of the party. Then I think you've got what is more of a kind of hybrid between sort of traditional social conservatives and the kind of newer MAGA-adjacent right. And, you know, this is what the DeSantis campaign is sort of shaping up to be. It's, it's, you know, one part Ted Cruz and kind of one part uh, Elon Musk, you know. And look, yeah, there's yeah. also a substantial, Great way to look at it. You know, a substantial number of, of, of folks uh, who are going to find that message appealing in the Republican primary. But then you've got kind of the hardcore MAGA crowd that is ride or die with Trump. And, you know, what What ultimately is that? I think it varies state to state. Uh, I think the college-educated or not demographics of each of these primary states are going to matter a lot. Um, and one state, by the way, that has not gotten a lot of attention, Nevada, don't forget, is one of the least college-educated states in America, which Trump famously pointed out by saying... Uh, I love our un uneducated voters or something like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. He was going through the demographics like a pollster. But uh, not <laughs> quite with the same surgical language that I think uh, would have been expected. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think that that's kind of roughly where I see it, Ryan, is, um, and I put it in my last column, it's like, um, you know, basically, um, if you're not Donald Trump, you've got to forge a coalition that is the kind of old establishment, the kind of like Ted Cruz, Elon Musk uh, crowd. And then don't forget, like there's still a few like center right kind of moderate, right? The, the McCain, Kasich. I guess you could say Chris Sununu is kind of the face of that today, which is, you know, more center-right, moderate. Um, much smaller, I think, but still relevant and certainly relevant in a place like New Hampshire. And so it's like, you know, could you get John Kasich, Mitch McConnell, and Ted Cruz in the same room? Uh, you know, it's almost like the start of a joke, right? Like, you know, John yeah. Kasich, Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell walk into a bar. Um, and... That's a hell of a challenge, putting that crowd together. But I think that's the, how you beat Trump, is you've got to sort of rally these disparate forces within the party. And how does that happen? I think money helps a lot. And I think the lack of money could be a forcing mechanism. But we that's saw it. this in 16. If you have a super PAC uh, donor then you know you can kind of stay in the race for a little while longer. It, it, it artificially extends a campaign in a way that in the past campaigns ended when they ran out of money. And so I think money could be a forced mechanism, but it's not what it was historically because of super PACs. Um, and I think that there's going to be, Ryan, some effort at the end of the year, start of next year, among party officials to try to find the best, strongest alternative to Trump and exert some pressure along with donors on the rest of the, the the field. But boy, you know how politicians are. You tell them, hey, pal, sorry, your poll numbers are in the friggin' dumpster. You got to get out of the race because you ain't going to win. And you're just going to sit on votes that the stronger candidate needs to beat Trump. They don't want to hear that, right? Um, and they certainly don't want to hear that before the first vote's even been cast in Iowa. Yeah. Well, the, all right. So, the, so you're talking about like what could winnow this field to 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 a one-on-one -on -one contest that could prevent the 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 primary from being a replay of 2016, where you know Trump benefits by by a a, a divided field, and of course the the primary rules on the Republican side are uh, mostly 
winner-take-all contests, which there, there are more of those now than ever, I believe. So he's in the catbird seat if the field stays divided. What, you know, in, in previous cycles, the debates, you know, rather than winnowing the field, it created these moments of interest in candidates that weren't very well known previously. Uh, we talked about, you know, two before, like, you know, Her- Herman Cain, for, for example, just because all of a sudden people wake up, they watch a debate and they say, yeah, hey, I, li- I like what that guy's saying. And suddenly there's a polling surge and a massive amount of press interest and, and fundraising. Talk a little bit about how the RNC is thinking about the debates this time around and whether it's going to be a big, you know, multi-night free-for-all or they're trying to, you know, maybe start that way and and, and limit the number of candidates on that stage. Because the, the way that they design these debates and the rules could have a, a massive effect, I believe, on, uh, on winnowing the field. Yes. In some ways, as consequential as donors and donor money in terms of being able to exert some level of control, uh, Ryan, uh, yeah. because those debates are oxygen. Uh, you either have it and you survive or you don't and you're a non-factor in the race. Um, and so the first, I think, way that the RNC has got control of it is they control the debates. I mean, they're, they're party-sanctioned debates. Uh, yeah. These are not sort of independent media debates that the candidates happen to come to. Uh, the RNC runs these things and, and chooses the news outlets to conduct them. So I think that's the first thing. The other thing is, Ryan, they establish a threshold as to who's going to make the the uh, the debate stage. Uh, that includes both a certain polling percentage, which I think is going to be very low, but significantly, it also requires a minimum number of individual donors to the campaign, hmm. not the super PAC, to the campaign. And that's going to be 40,000 individual donors to get on the first debate stage in August. Yeah. What's, give us some context in terms of how, how, how hard that is for like a, a Vivek Ramaswamy or a Chris Christie to, to hit. It's very difficult to get the 40,000 donors if you are not Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And I think, Ryan, what we're going to see is two things. I think we're going to see what we saw in the 2020 Democratic race in which candidates had to spend money on Facebook ads and other yeah. social media ads to raise small-dollar contributions to get onto the debate stage. Effectively, you're having to spend money to buy yourself a ticket onto the debate stage yeah. because yeah. you 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 try to sort of find new small dollar donors by advertising to them <laughs> via social media um, so that you can meet that minimum threshold of individual yeah. donors. I think we'll see that. And then I think closer to the, the, the uh, debate, Ryan, I thought we're going to see a hue and cry from these candidates who either are not making the stage or a jeopardy of not making the stage. They're going to be furious. They're going to say, there's not been a single vote cast. It's not the RNC's role to sort of tell us who is or is not viable yet. And I think it's going to be contentious. Um, but, it's going to be fascinating to see how Trump reacts to that if he if he sticks with this view that like the big field helps him, right? He was very positive about Scott's entry into the race, right? He's you know, he's no dummy. And whether he, you know, and whether he says, "You know what? Chris Christie should be on that stage," or whether he says, "You know, screw Christie, you know, I I want him out." To borrow a phrase, Miss Romney McDaniel, I paid for this microphone. Um, <laughs> exactly. I think the big nerds in the audience will appreciate that reference to uh, Reagan in 80. Yeah, look, Trump wants a bigger field. With Trump, Ryan, like there's no subtext. It's all text, you know? So like Trump is open about when Tim Scott got into the race earlier in the week, you know, Trump was like, looks like a big field for me. (laughs) Yes, yes, the more the merrier. There's no subtlety with Trump. Uh, So yeah, I mean, he probably wants a massive stage. Um, You know, the more candidates carving up the vote, uh, the better for him. Um, uh, that said, you know, it's also Trump. So it's like, yeah, I want a massive stage, but, uh, keep Chris Christie off. Exactly. Exactly. After a few more personal attacks from Christie, he'll, you know, he'll, 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 this gets to the larger issue of, uh, you know, as the saying goes, hope in one hand, spit in the other and see which fills up faster. You know, basically for the Republicans who trying to stop Trump, the strategy is now a lot of hope, you know? I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, maybe Trump will get indicted by DOJ or Fulton County, and that will finally unravel his candidacy. Maybe Chris Christie or somebody else will destroy him on a debate stage, and that will unravel his candidacy. Maybe the Republican voters will come to their senses and rally to one alternative in that. I mean, there's just so much... um, uh, so much sort of wish casting, right, Ryan, when it comes to Trump. And um, I, I think that the debates are going to be certainly uh, a part of that. But for these candidates who are in the race or those thinking about the race, I don't think they fully grappled with the fact that, like, this could be really embarrassing if they can't even make a single debate. Like, what's the point, you know? No, that that is a huge development that I don't think has gotten uh, enough attention you know, on the electability argument that 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 some of these guys guys are making, and I think this is you know a big part of the, of the DeSantis uh, case. I mean, what do you? Th- one argument that at least uh, strikes me as as something that Republican primary voters might uh, might you know Trump supporters might pause and think, huh, that's not a bad point, is that Trump can't run again. And as the DeSantis crew likes to point out, as soon as he's elected, he becomes a lame duck. And, you know, there's this sort of as much as you may like this guy, um, if you want to defeat the left, you need someone who can be in there for eight years, not four years. Now, I imagine Trump, the Trump campaign will have a response. Maybe it'll be about who their vice presidential candidate is. Um, maybe it'll just be some kind of, don't worry, I'll run again, I'll figure it out. Um, That's the other thing, if we're but, being honest, Trump will say, well, maybe we'll just see about uh, you know running running for, for a third term. That's likely what he would say. But um, that, that electability are, you know, there's sort of two parts. One is, you know, these guys are going to say I'm more electable than than, than Trump, and two, um, even if you love him, um, whatever he says, he he can't run again. I mean, I don't think we have a hell of a lot of data about whether that's a, a, a plausible argument. Sometimes these kind of process arguments seem narrow, and voters don't really respond to them. But um, is there anything else you're hearing from these candidates? Yeah, that you I think, mean, can I just oh, tell that, you, like, you know, what I hear? that guy's on to something here. What I hear from grassroots Republicans. Uh, after events, it often, why can't Trump and DeSantis join forces? I'm sure you've heard that too, right? Uh, we'll, you know, we'll have. Trump, I like them both. Yeah, I like them both. Yeah. We'll have Trump do one more term, and then DeSantis can do two. Um, yeah, yeah. And like, I think a lot of voters believe that'd be a great option. Now, Donald Trump, I think, would no more put DeSantis on the ticket uh, than he would like go vegan. <laughs> you really think so? You you think he's you think that you think Unless I mean it was the only way that he's petty and vengeful, but he also has a habit of uh, of, of bringing people back and yeah, he, bringing people look, back look into the Steve fold. Bannon, sloppy Steve is back in the fold, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. Ryan, you're right, but I think that's when it comes to aides and advisors. I think it's different when it comes to somebody as his running mate, and I think that because yeah, of, because of of as the kids say, his lived experience, right? Donald Trump's lived experience with a running mate uh, didn't turn out so well if you're Donald Trump, right? (laughs) Uh, And that's the person we got to talk about next. We got to talk about Pence. And I don't think we have to remind our our listeners exactly how that worked out for Donald Trump uh, on January (laughs) 6th, 2021. Um, So I think Trump's going to be very careful on who he picks. And I think it's unlikely uh, that he would... uh, that he would uh, put DeSantis uh, on the ticket. But this is, look, it reminds me of 2019 talking to Democrats, right? You would ask them about who they like, right? And because all voters are now pundits, they would say, I think it should be Biden and Kamala Harris and that it should be a Biden-Harris ticket, right? You heard that so much from grassroots voters. And of course- They they, talk strategically. Yes, because they're all pundits now. And like you heard it again and again, so that by the time Biden picked her, uh, it was like almost a fait accompli because the voters themselves had smelled that from day one, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, also he did promise to to pick a um, an African American woman, and the the list was you know was was relatively short. But I thought about in nineteen, right? Like I mean, early in that cycle. 
you would hear this. Yeah, even before that. Oh, yeah. You know, you, know, you, know, you would hear all the time. And, and I think, you know, you hear something similar now when it comes to, to, come to Trump and DeSantis, you know. So, Hell, of the folks uh, that are... At the Tim Scott event, um, I even had a lady volunteer. Uh, I like Scott. I like Trump a lot, too. Maybe it can be Trump and Scott. You know, it's just like you already yes. hear... If you don't want Trump to go away entirely, then like you, you just like wish cast that Trump can pick somebody else that you also like, you know. But that yeah. gets to Trump's enduring strength with a lot of the party, you know. Of the candidates who aren't in the race, the the one that has just been squeezed out of the conversation, I feel, over the last few weeks, even though I know he's sort of quietly doing events and going to the early states, is Mike Pence. What's your bet? on whether he jumps in and handicap his uh his his strengths and weaknesses sure so i mean i thought because be, be, there there does not seem to be much of an appetite for his candidacy i thought he may reconsider and and not actually get in the race i don't think that anymore i i, mm. I think he's almost certainly gonna run and he's gonna announce in june part of that is the desantis like weakness maybe a, a little bit like a lot of these guys, they see... I think this is a much part of a larger mission for Pence of... I was a movement conservative before Donald J. Trump even became a Republican. And uh, win or lose, I'm going to go out as a movement conservative. And I'm going to be true to that creed. That creed is basically the Wall Street Journal editorial page, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, um, project force abroad, um, small government at home, uh, and basically, you know, free markets. Um, and, and even, you know, let's get serious about entitlements. Uh, yeah. I yeah. talk about stepping into a time machine, right? Um, Pence is, is, is embracing his like, you know, 2003 RSC, uh, a chairmanship unapologetically. Wow, that's a that's a throwback. Only only the only the deep dive uh, listeners will, will remember that era and what the RSC is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it was before the Freedom Caucus, kid. It was before the Freedom Caucus. The RSC, they're they're a bunch of squishes now. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, basically, rhinos. So, anyways, <laughs> um, I think that that that's Pence is going to do that. He's going to be true to himself, what he was before Trump, and he's going to see if there's a market for it. Like, I think he's clear-eyed about the challenge ahead and uh, what kind of opening the market offers. Um, but I think he is determined to give it a shot, and I think he wants to sort of um, remind folks of who he was before before Trump. Um, and I think he also feels like uh, the rest of the candidates not named Trump have their flaws and the party, after they've tried everything else, will come back to the sensible guy next door. Uh, that's me, Mr. Midwest, reliable conservative. Um, th I think that's at least sort of the theory. But I think a lot of this has to do with him, you know, wanting to redeem himself and wanting to be true to his movement conservative roots. On the Democratic side, they're watching this primary, obviously, very, very closely. Do you think Joe Biden and the people around him want Donald Trump to be the nominee? I mean, the great thing about covering Joe Biden, Ryan, is that if you want to know what Joe Biden thinks about something, just ask Joe Biden. <laughs> Uh, eventually, he'll always tell you, um, more so than his staff even wants. That's why we don't hear from Joe Biden very often, because his staff knows that he'll tell us that is true. what he thinks. Uh, to, to borrow a line from um, David Axelrod, and I can't do this justice like Axe, but um, the, the, uh, um, the Biden staff has anxiety performance. Biden performs <laughs> and they get anxious. <laughs> I do think, though, for, to the extent that Biden paused earlier this year, and you know, and maybe that wasn't a real pause, the DeSantis, like, tr just you know, just like all the other Republicans who jumped in the race because they saw blood in the water, and the DeSantis was, you know, maybe a paper tiger. I, I think it, at the very least, with Biden, it it's it it made him confident in his decision to do this because he 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 
he believed, okay, it's going to be, it's very likely to be Trump again. Now, does that, does that bleed into, I hope it's Trump again. He's the devil. I know. I know how to win that fight. Uh, I I don't know. What's your view of that? That's a dangerous wish, of course. Yeah. Look, if Donald Trump fell into a sinkhole tomorrow and was never heard from again, there would be instantaneously uh, calls from Democrats for Joe Biden to call it a career after his first term and to clear the race and have a contested uh, primary. I have no doubt about that. The, the, the most powerful unifying force in the Democratic Party has been and is Donald J. Trump. <clears throat> the most powerful force for Joe Biden's renomination has been and is Donald J. Trump. And Biden knows this and basically has said it out loud. God love him. Um, I think it was David Muir, and then I think it was like some Israeli television interviewer where he said some version of, I'm more likely to run if Trump is the nominee. Um, Oh, interesting. I don't actually remember that. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. He did say it. (laughs) uh, Biden knows that if Trump is the odds on favorite, that that insulates him from a primary, right? I mean, basically, Biden has created, I'm sorry, Ryan, Trump has created a moat around the Biden White House, of which no Democrat dares tread. Because yeah. if you do that and you challenge Biden, hell, challenge him. Even if you criticize him or say he shouldn't run again, you are offering aid and comfort to Trump effectively. And as long as Trump presents the threat that he does, Democrats are going to leave Joe Biden alone and they're going to rally to him because they feel like the play-it-safe approach, three yards in a cloud of dust, is the best way to fend off Trump again. And Biden knows yeah. that, and it's the best thing he has going for him when it comes to the primary, because there is no primary, effectively, as long as Trump is out there. So, believe, yeah, yeah, there's a lot yeah. uh, uh, of reasons why Biden would prefer Trump. And we haven't even t- touched on the other one, which is that they feel like he's the, the you know weakest uh, nominee in the general for the Republicans. He's lost yes. once. He's even more polarizing now than he was in 2020. And they think he'd be a weak candidate. He also happens yeah. to be no spring chicken either. Uh, obviously younger than Biden, but not by a lot. Uh, so yeah, I think the, uh, the White House obviously ha- has an interest in, in Trump being the nominee again. What I wonder, Ryan, is <clears throat> when and how do DeSantis and the other Republicans weaponize that? When and how did they start saying... Donald, there's a reason why the Biden White House wakes up every day on bended knee praying that you're the nominee, uh, because they, they know that you're going to be the weakest candidate against Biden in the general. Like, at what point to, yeah. does that start getting said and said directly? You know, the point at the point when they ha- when they're willing to fully confront and take on the argument that 2020 was a fair election and Trump lost. That's know, a great point. Nationally by millions of votes. And that I mean, that is the, the, the I almost said genius, but it's not genius. But that is the incredible, you know, the, the way that Trump has been able to twist 2020 and turn the truth about that election into a problem for his primary opponents is uh, is just wild. That's their core argument. He's a, he lost. He's a loser. But you can't make that argument because a lot of Republican primary voters don't don't want to hear it. No, no, it's a great insight. But Ryan, you know, while we're on by, we should say, as we talk right now, it's May. There's a lot that could happen in both fields between now and next year's primary. Uh, events take place. They shape our elections. They shape, obviously, our 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 world. And uh, I think there there's still things that could that could transpire that that would alter this election. Um, and I think it's unlikely that as long as Trump poses the threat he does, <clears throat> that Biden would face a mainstream Democratic primary opponent. Um, but you know, let's see what happens the rest of this calendar year and. Uh, where his numbers stand and kind of how he presents uh, in, in public. Um, and even, Ryan, if Biden does not draw uh, a primary challenger from you know, a sitting governor or a sitting senator or, or uh, a member of the House, I still think Robert F. Kennedy Jr., with that name and the kind of populist um, you know, appeal that he's making, is going to pick up some votes. 
uh, in a Democratic primary. Is it going to be enough to be more than a nuisance today? I don't think so, but let's see where this winds up. I mean, we're in an era of of sort of, you know, you know, angry populism uh, is the order of the day. And uh, not for everybody, but there is a constituency for that out there. And yeah. um, obviously Trump tapped into that. And, you know, let's see what exists uh, in, in the center and the left for that as well. That's a good point. And what we haven't talked about, and I think hasn't been talked about enough generally, is what does this look like in New Hampshire, where Biden's not going to be on the ballot uh, next year? If Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wins the New Hampshire primary effectively. Um, is that a one-day story, or is that something more embarrassing or more complicating, at least, for, for Biden, you know? RFK Jr. is polling better than I think most people um, realize in, in some of these states because of the Kennedy name. It, that's probably what's driving it. But is there going to be a point where the Biden team decides they need to respond and they need to call him out? They need to attack him. And, and then suddenly that looks like a primary fight. <laughs> so... Jmart, thank you very much for doing this. Excellent conversation. Let's make it a, a regular occurrence and um, we'll continue this uh, very soon. Um, final word, what's, your, uh, what's the next stop on your, your itinerary? Well, uh, I've got a column out now uh, based on um, uh, Senator Scott's announcement and uh, 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 this week, uh, so your listeners can find that on uh, on Politico uh, com. But this has been really fun, and uh, I'm 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 thrilled to be working with you, Ryan, and and writing the column at Politico. It's um it's been fantastic, and uh, boy, this is going to be a fascinating few months here uh, ahead uh, in both parties. So looking forward to coming back. Good stuff, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Ryan. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And special thanks to Eve Abrams for field production in New Orleans this week. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.